1: to supper clubs every opportunity that we possibly can. I kind of grew up with them. I think a supper club is best defined as one that ideally has an organ in the bar, but that's very rare nowadays. The atmosphere is one that you just can't beat, and Wisconsin has a lot of supper clubs left, fortunately. So, get out and have a very old-fashioned tonight.
2: That was Mark in Oregon, Wisconsin. Supper clubs burst onto the scene in America in the 1930s. Back then, they were places where you could go get a meal and dance. They were also places you could drink. The end of Prohibition made a lot of these clubs very popular. And as we heard from Mark, they're still a good night out. One fictional venue set in northern Minnesota sets the stage for a new and terrific read. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. The book is called Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, and its bestselling author, J. Ryan Strottle, joins us to talk about supper clubs right after this.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life, Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T E L A D O C health slash what's your why? What does
2: it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Well, without further ado, let's welcome Jay Ryan-Straddle. He joins us from his home in Los Angeles County. Jay, welcome to the program. Hi, it's an
1: honor to be here.
2: So for those unfamiliar with supper clubs, I'd love your description of a classic Midwestern supper club.
1: Ooh, uh, may I use Mariel's description? Mariel being my main character. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is is how she describes them. Every summer weekend, the horseshoe-shaped bar and its wood-paneled lounge were packed with people fresh from fishing boats and softball games and cars that had driven up from the cities. It was a place where people chose to be on the most memorable nights of their lives, and it was a pleasure to be at the center of it all. On Muriel's watch, a proper supper club meal began with a free relish tray and basket of bread with a round of brandy old fashions, and then a lavish amount of hearty cuisine with fish on Fridays, prime rib on Saturdays, and grasshoppers for dessert. Does that sound good to you?
2: <laughs> right now, it sounds pretty pretty darn good. It's getting close to lunchtime for me. Well, you, you worked at a supper club called the Steamboat Inn. What was it like? That's right. Oh, it's
1: wonderful. It was a dream job. Um, that was the nicest restaurant in our area, and supper clubs usually are. And that was the kind of place where, indeed, we spent the most memorable nights of our lives. It's where we celebrated birthdays. It's where I celebrated my graduation. And I got to work there with my friend, Pat Rowan, and his dad, Mike. And Mike Rowan was one of the people I interviewed for this job (laughs) or interviewed for this book to uh, get some of the details right and take me back. I I only left the supper club because I got a job at a bookstore. (laughs) Uh, Otherwise, I may have worked there more summers. But it really stuck with me because to me, it was just the ideal dining experience in where I lived in Hastings in uh, southeastern Minnesota. There were about four separate clubs within about 20 minutes of where I lived at one, t- one time. And the Steamboat Inn is sadly long gone, but I just, <laughs> I just couldn't forget about these places. I've been wanting to write about them for a long time.
2: Well, we're hearing from lots of you. Thomas in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, writes, I have fond memories of growing up in Beloit, Wisconsin back in the 60s and a very nice supper club called the Butterfly Club. My parents would go there on occasion and were members of a group called Tucks and Gowns where they would dress up formally two or three times a year. I now live in the Northeast and don't recall seeing supper clubs. So is this largely a Midwestern creation? And are supper clubs more common in rural or urban areas? If, for your research, in this book, Jade did you, did you find that out? I think they are largely Midwestern, right?
1: Yeah, they're almost exclusively Northern Midwest, and they're almost exclusively rural and or in vacation areas. Um, there are a few in cities, but I think the classic supper club experience uh, kind of makes you work to get to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's either in a place that you'd go on vacation or a place that's a little hard to find, maybe in the middle of nowhere, off a country road. And You get there, and it's an oasis and also a really wonderful third space for its community where it's more than just a restaurant. You know, you sit down, you get this free relish tray. It's like you're a guest in a home. You know, here's your plate of free food.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How are they evolving today?
1: Wow. I've seen some uh, show up in cities. There is a new one in Minneapolis called Creekside. The um, famous Turks Inn in Hayward, Wisconsin had its... uh, much of its props and its signage relocate to a property in New York (laughs) where I believe it's been reconstituted. I haven't visited it yet, but it's my understanding that, yeah, um, someone moved it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah, there's a a place called uh, the Tornado Room in Madison, Wisconsin I've been to. So yeah, there's a few in cities, but for the most part, I think part of the experience is traveling to get to it Mm -hmm. and going on a little adventure. And making a whole night out of it.
2: You said you always wanted to write about supper clubs. Why? What was it about them that you said, you know, this should be the centerpiece of a novel?
1: They're so definitively Midwestern. And as a kid growing up in Minnesota, as a voracious reader, I just was so hungry for any representation (laughs) of the Midwest and the books I was reading. So when I started writing uh, novels that were good enough to be published. <laughs> I've written at least one that wasn't. Um, I really wanted to represent my home state the best I could and add to the conversation about what is Minnesota and what is the Midwest, and that led me back to supper clubs. I'd tried to shoehorn them into earlier books, and they were wisely removed for being a little bit too digressive, but finally I could focus on one and use it as a, as a backdrop in a setting to tell a much larger story about family legacy.
2: Well, your earlier novel, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, also features characters with a passion for for food and drink, and that came after your debut novel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest. What is it about the business of of food and drink that keeps you coming back?
1: Oh, I've just been intrigued by it since I was a kid. It's what I spent a lot of my disposable income on (laughs) when I was a teenager. I was one of those kids who had a list of restaurants I wanted to go to once I got my driver's license. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, yeah, it just preoccupies me. Maybe it's because I don't eat when I write, and I'll write for up to seven, eight hours at a time, and I get really hungry, and I start thinking about what I want to eat. But I also wrote this book during the pandemic, uh, a large period of time in which I couldn't go to restaurants. And so I just created this ideal restaurant in my head I got to go to every day.
2: Well, we heard from Kat in Santa Cruz, California, who wanted to share this. I am dating (laughs) the person that Kitchens of the Great Midwest is about. I have the book. I didn't read it before I knew it was about them. So (laughs) I am going to not share their name for their privacy, but I am totally in love with the person that Kitchens of the Great Midwest is written about. So that's pretty cool. Thought I'd call it. Thanks. Kat, thanks for that message. So other than making Kat very happy, your debut novel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, was a bestseller. It received critical acclaim. What are some of the themes from Kitchens of the Great Midwest that you're continuing to explore in Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, The most important theme to me, the one I keep coming back to, is uh, family loss. (laughs) I sat down to write Kitchens after my writing teacher, Lou Matthews, gave me a really important <laughs> writing lesson, which was once you start writing about things you care about, your work's going to get a lot better. <laughs> Most of my life, I'd written stuff that I thought would just amuse my family and friends. But I'm a writer today because of my mom, Karen, Karen Beale Straddle. Uh, but she passed away in 2005, about a year before I published my first short story. And she'd always wanted to be a novelist herself and died before she could realize that dream. And I felt, you know, There's No Time Like the Present. i got to get on it. That's when I started taking writing classes with people like Lou, who's an excellent writer. Uh, His collection, Shaky Town, is just wonderful. And learning from them and also becoming a really voracious reader in my genre, but also working through that grief, spending so much time finally encountering and working with the grief I've been avoiding. Um, And I just sat down, wrote that novel, and I felt like I was talking to my mom again. And that's been true of every book since. Perhaps this one, most of all, the box of books <laughs> that we get from our publisher um, arrived 18 years to the day uh, from my mom's death day. Mm-hmm. And I opened it and I thought, here she is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I put her in this book, uh, in in Mariel, most of all, uh, as a means of keeping her alive and putting her in these characters to continue a conversation with her and to some extent try to continue the or have the career she wanted and continue her legacy. And so in terms of themes that carry over from Kitchens, both um, working through the grief of my mom's loss, but also family legacy. I'm a father now. I had my uh, first child, uh, my son Auden, uh, during... um, the course of writing the first draft, he was born in December 2019, and the book's dedicated to him. And I'd never thought about <laughs> what I was going to leave behind until I was a father. I just sort of assumed that all of my property would just be piled up in a yard and burned. <laughs> and 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 now I think, uh, well, there's a there's a guy, who, a little guy who might want one or two things from that pile. And I've got to uh, think about him and think about the world I'm creating for him. And so much of that went into this book too. Um, both family loss, which is a really strong theme in Supper Club, but also legacy. And I don't want to leave this out. A lot of humor. I I don't know how the last few years have been for you, Jen, but I really needed to laugh. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And when I sat down to write this book, I very consciously put a lot of stuff in that I thought was really funny. Perhaps most of all, the uh, standoff between Florence and Muriel, where uh, Florence wants... uh, her daughter Mariel to pick her up from the Lutheran church pancake breakfast. Mariel hits a deer and can't make it in time, and through other circumstances gets led astray. And Florence decides to wait. Wait in that church for three months. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and what's hilarious and, about that is the way the community comes around to support Florence in her in her waiting. No one says, Florence, someone else will take you home. They already know Florence isn't moving. She's gonna she has moved into the church until Muriel shows up. That's
1: right. She's waiting for her daughter to pick her up. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So this this story starts in nineteen thirty four when Betty and her young daughter Florence, who we are also introduced later to as as Muriel's mom, but they meet they meet Floyd and he owns the Lakeside Supper Club. They're they're down on their luck. Floyd gives them a ride north and a place to stay. Betty starts working at the club. Years pass. Florence grows up. She has Muriel, and and their relationship, this mother daughter relationship, really between Betty and Florence and Florence and Muriel, it's not it's not easy. It's it's rife with judgment and tragedy. And love, though it's not always recognized as such. How do these characters reflect each other, even when they're at odds?
1: Wow. I think they're all reactions to each other sometimes, as children can sometimes be to their parents. You know, I know as a parent, I sometimes think about how I was raised and consciously or unconsciously... um, Try to correct some oversights. (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, I know I'm making my own. Um, uh, Audie's going to come back to Brooke and myself in 18 years or less and say, you know what, (laughs) here's how you screwed me up. Uh, (laughs) And each generation gets to do that, and we just have to deal with it. Uh, And I'm looking at these three um, characters through their own generation. They're all just doing the best they can. They're all uh, experiencing difficult circumstances in one way or another. And adapting to them. And Florence's uh, <laughs> very paranoid overprotectiveness is uh, certainly a reaction to her mother. Um, and Mariel's more permissive parenting style towards her children is a reaction to hers. And, yeah, I see that in my own life. And there's more, uh, more than a bit of me in Florence, unfortunately. <laughs> mm. well, yeah. Well, the, the yeah, now that novel... I have a three-year-old.
2: Yeah. Well, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, now that I have a three year old you know you think you childproof a room, and uh no, no, they correct you. They find <laughs> the thing you missed
2: <laughs> well, well, the novel explores a, a certain type of I was trying to find the right term for it. I landed on casual cruelty we sometimes inflict on one another, so for example, Florence decides to only mail the in-state college applications for Muriel, throwing the out-of-state applications away without telling her. And she convinces herself that she's protecting Muriel. Ultimately, things turn out okay. But what were you hoping to explore about the way cruelty framed as protection shows up in relationships?
1: Oh, oh you nailed it. Um, someone who's dispensing love on their own terms— uh, I wanted to illustrate that, I wanted to illustrate the effects of that and how the effects as they came back to visit Florence ended up having a very unintended negative effect on her. I, she, she didn't quite have the foresight to understand what she was putting in motion through that action. Um, you know, when, when someone does something like that, they're probably not thinking as long-term as they think they are. And so, <laughs> and so I wanted to explore the consequences of of that kind of casual cruelty. I've, I've observed it, you know, and I feel like it, it deserves a reckoning. And when that character makes that action, I thought, how can this be turned around to affect her in an unexpected way? Mm. And uh, without spoilers, <laughs> um, I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that's a, that, that was a very fun thing to explore.
2: There's also, I, I noted, um, the way you write about sort of ordinary tragedies. And by that I mean, they are huge life altering tragedies that af- that affect our life, that upend lives in this novel. But they happen through these sort of ordinary circumstances and then life around us returns to its ordinary patterns, which shapes the way we feel we're able to grieve. And after hearing you talk about your mom and your process of of grieving through writing this book. How have you come to think about about those tragedies and and how they they shape us?
1: Yeah, one of the issues I have with our culture and perhaps (laughs) the culture of the working-class Midwest in which I was raised is how little space was created for grief. How, you know, you'd suffer a loss, even like an ordinary loss, as you put it, and you're just kind of expected to go back to work. Yeah. <laughs> and I have characters like Ned, you know, who is walking back to work the first day he's back at work and he sees all these family pictures everywhere and they just trigger him. Uh, and he just has to decide, you know, I can't ask these people to take these pictures down. I have to just look at the floor the next time I walk. And uh, that Ned
2: the, <laughs> is Muriel's husband, we should say.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you're expected to adapt. You're expected to... You know, keep a stiff upper lip, you know, uh, and, and, and deal with it and not make it other people's problem. And, you know, I, 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 I think a lot more space needs to be created uh, for grieving in our culture. And I really try to get to that in my book.
2: Well, before we take a quick break, I want to read this message from Julie in Bloomington, Indiana. She says, My first job as a teenager was at Gibson's Supper Club in New Richmond, Wisconsin. An absolute must is the relish tray served before the meal. I do remember a lot of cocktails consumed. Stingers, brandy old-fashioned cocktails, and ice cream drinks served after dinner. Back in the day, I was even allowed to serve the drinks, even though I was 15. I'm Jen White, back with more in a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. A new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics. Built to move in. Styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping. Biking and hiking. Axing and snacksing. Backpacking. And another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside.
2: Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now let's get back to all things Supper Club. Michael wrote in says, I actually just went to a Supper Club for the very first time out in South Range, Wisconsin, a drive off the beaten path. It's called Dreamland Supper Club. It was a vintage experience for someone like me in my late 20s. And Mary Jo in Dearborn, Michigan says, I have never been to a Supper Club, but it sounds like so much fun. I read Kitchens of the Great Midwest and loved it. Looking forward to reading the new one. So, Jay, there's there's four, really four generations of women in this novel. There's Betty, her daughter Florence, Florence's daughter Mariel, and Mariel's daughter Julia. And it struck me that for those first three generations, there are these conversations they need to have with each other that they never really have. And then there's Julia, who has a different mother-daughter experience, and I'm trying here not to, not to spoil the novel, but, but how do those, those silences end up showing up in Julia's life?
1: Well, much like with myself, um, you imagine what your parent might have wanted for you, and you're forced to answer silence in a different way because the previous generations also were forced to assume mm-hmm. <laughs> in their own way as mm-hmm. well uh when you have parents that don't disclose a lot about their their past or in Florence's case only disclose uh <laughs> their childhood privations by lessons i.e. um in my day we never had hot food for breakfast <laughs> or yeah when i was a kid i didn't have a lawn you know that kind of stuff um And so, yeah, Maria was forced to discern what she could about her mother's history from these piecemeal lessons that her mother gave her. And Julia is forced to do the same uh, um, in in, in a different way. But you're ultimately creating the image of your parent that you need Mm -hmm. (laughs) from whatever it is they give you and however it is they convey that. And I've seen that in my own life. You know I, I deal with it myself uh, through having a deceased parent. I think a lot about what would she want When I sit down to write a book, my mom is the reader I think of, and I think, "Would she like this?" you know i i I live under the weight of that shadow, but everybody does, even when their parents are alive, they they can't know everything. and one of the one of the reasons I wrote the book the way I did was so the reader could, so the reader could get into the hearts and minds of these characters and understand them a little better. And it's unfortunate that their children don't <laughs> have the same access.
2: Yeah. Well, there are two other characters in this in this book non non human characters. Of course, there's the supper club. There's the Lakeside Supper Club, and then there's Jorby's, which is this casual dining chain, midwestern chain restaurant. Mariel comes from the Lakeside Supper Club lineage, and Ned, her husband, comes from the Jorby's. Uh, culinary lineage. What what stories were you telling through those restaurants?
1: Well, as a kid, I saw when Applebee's came to my hometown, some people say, oh, we're a real town now. We're on the map. Mm. <laughs> um, a, a chain franchise like that, View, uh, viewed us as um, worthy. <laughs> mm. And, yeah, we had a Perkins, you know. Uh, that's one of the inspirations for Jorby's. Uh Places like Perkins, Bob Evans, um, Denny's, I suppose. But I was thinking more of the Midwest local chains. But, yeah, I also saw, shortly after the Applebee's come to town, some of the locally owned and operated restaurants start to fade away. Um, and I understand why some people... Chose Applebee's over those restaurants. I think Applebee's might have been a little cheaper, but it, yeah. Nonetheless, the, the, that that effect, the effect that that had on the town, really stuck with me, and I knew that was a story I wanted to tell too. Is just the validation that some people feel when, heck, even a subway comes to town. <laughs> mm. I, 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 yeah. I have a friend who come, came from a much smaller town. When the subway showed up, they thought, oh, now we're legit. Um, and yeah, it's unfortunate because. In and around Hastings in the time at the time there were such wonderful and unique places. And that's what I look for in a dining experience. Uh, when, when I can afford such experiences, I, I want to have something I can't have anywhere else, and that's what a supper club can provide. Now, as the parent of a small child, I do understand the value of consistency. And certainly, if uh, you have a kid that only eats about four things, you see that Applebee's, and you know it has one of those four things, and it's going to be the same here as in California. All right, <laughs> but but I, if I had my brothers, I, you know, I I I'd, I'd be rooting for every one of the supper clubs I experienced as a kid. Um, only one of which, uh, Weiderholtz, is still near Hastings uh, and still going strong. And I, I don't think that's an accident. And. I've, I felt compelled to tell that story as well.
2: Let's go back to our inbox. Diane called us from Gaylord, Minnesota. I took my husband of 43 years on our first date back in 1977 to a supper club in St. Cloud, Minnesota. We both worked in a nursing home and had recently graduated from college. So I was looking for a new apartment. He told me he was moving to the Twin Cities shortly to attend the University of Minnesota. I told him I'm very interested in renting his apartment and if he could put in a good word for me to the landlord, I'd take him out to dinner. Well, I got the apartment and picked him up, drove to the supper club, paid in full his entire meal, which consisted of frog legs and wine. I'd never spent that much money on a meal nor ever had such a fancy meal, but it turned out well and we were married three years later. Diane, thanks for that message. I'm curious about the Supper Club, not just as a dining experience, but also, especially for the Lakeside Supper Club, as, it, as it's created in your novel, as a place of refuge for people.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. A refuge for the owner and employees, as well as the customers. I, I mean, I've seen that in my own life. Um, people who need a place outside of home or work uh, to, to establish and nurture a community. And Supper clubs are great at that. For starters, <laughs> there's a full bar. <laughs> and um, it's the kind of place where no one's going to be waving a, a, the check under your nose after an hour. You can really make a night out of it. Uh, some of them still have entertainment. Uh, traditionally, they, they mostly did. Uh, as you said earlier, music and dancing. And, but there are still places where, and I got this story from one of the supper club owners I interviewed drinks will be waiting for you when the door is opened. Like the the bartender will know where you sit and what you like, and there it is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I I absolutely love that. It's it's the sort of restaurant where you can build relationships and friendships and not just be a consumer in a transactional relationship, but you can actually uh, get to know uh, the owner (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, since the supper clubs, um, they're almost exclusively owner-operated, and quite often the owners work front of house. And I I think, how often does that happen? How often can you walk into a, a business and meet the owner, let alone eat their food and sit down and have a conversation with them? Mm-hmm. It's uh, – it's a irreplicable experience that unfortunately is uh, becoming less common. And one of the reasons I wanted to write about it now was to get people going back to them <laughs> and keep them alive longer.
2: We also heard from David in D.C. who says, I'm a librarian in Washington, D.C. I've been enjoying Straddle's books since Kitchens and was lucky to get to read a preview of Supper Club. It's been fun to see him pepper each new book with appearances and references to characters from Kitchens and Lager Queen. Straddle does a fun job of connecting all of his books to one bigger story. Love it. And Alexandra writes this, "...I grew up in Wisconsin. The mention of them evokes thoughts of summer evenings, fish fries, brandy old fashions, wood-paneled siding, and the dining room that spills out from the big bar. But mostly, supper clubs are the true definition of community and a window into the -the salt-of-the-earth nature of sometimes conservative and stoic Minnesotans and Wisconsinites. We all want to go where everybody knows our name." Cheers. Thanks for that message. Now, Jay, though there is this feeling of nostalgia we're getting from our listeners, the the four women central to this book, Betty, Florence, Muriel, and Julia, their relationship with the Lakeside Supper Club is is fraught, I think it's fair to say. In in some cases, it's seen as legacy, in other cases it's seen as a burden. How did you want to examine that? theme of familial inheritance, be it um, property or a restaurant or something a little more um, hard to define in this novel?
1: Yeah, just as you described, uh, one of the things I kept hearing when interviewing current and former supper club owners was not every generation was enthusiastic about <laughs> inheriting a restaurant that they'd probably been working at for free or for cheap since they were kids and spending the rest of their lives in it. Um, I mean, some, some descendants certainly were, uh, but not everyone. And in telling a complete story about a place like that, I felt I had to cover all those perspectives. And I had to have a generation or two that struggled to reconcile the family legacy with their own values.
2: When we look at Muriel and Ned's relationship, they they experience really deep losses and are able to come out on the other side of those losses. But it takes a lot of work. <laughs> and eventually they have Julia and, and they're able to, to parent her. There's something about their relationship that is just, it's, it's so sweet because it's clear they love each other even when they feel like they can't really get, get close to each other. And I think it's just one examination of, a, of intimacy in the book. What stories were you trying to tell or, or were you trying to examine or questions maybe you were trying to answer for yourself about the nature of intimacy? Oh,
1: that it's <laughs> evolving. <Yeah. laughs> I, I know a lot of people. My entire life have described relationships and marriage as work, and, and I suppose, but it's also ever shifting. You know, I'm not the same person I was at 20. Thank God. <laughs> and 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 neither is my partner. And when you have a project together like this couple does, and also, well, in the case of this couple, Ned and have two projects that are at cross purposes, there's challenges to their connection. And that was fun and interesting to explore. I really tried to delve into what it would be like for these two to love each other amidst having goals that aren't complementary. Since that so often is what ends a relationship, you know? I mean, you can look into each other's eyes forever, but are you looking at the same horizon to twist (laughs) a cliché? And I wanted to write about a couple like that that's reckoning with their future when their future is so slippery and
2: subjective. Well, we got this comment from Katie who says, Okay, let's do a deep dive into the contents of a relish tray. Cottage cheese, bread and butter pickles, carrot sticks, celery sticks, radishes, canned peaches, and syrup. Van Abel's Supper Club in Darboy, Wisconsin, was where my family went. The bowling alley is gone, but the 300 guest weddings are going strong. I love this program because it reminds me so much of home. Katie, thanks for that message. Jay, you said you're a father now, and you mentioned how writing this novel allowed you to be in conversation with, with your mom again. What conversations are you hoping to have with your little one?
1: Oh wow! What a wonderful question. You know, I feel like I, Brooke and I had a lot of nerve bringing a kid into this world. <laughs> yeah, they have a lot of challenges. You know, the, this young generation that was born during the pandemic, and I just want to create space for him to shine and figure out who he is. I think that's the best I can do. Is just you know give him a safe space to start from, and the freedom to figure out what what he needs. You know, and what he needs from us. One of the things I wanted to write about in this book is how, um, well, you know, this supper club lasts a hundred years in this book. And it's extremely rare for any business to last a hundred years, let alone a restaurant. And in order to do so, it has to evolve. And each generation decides how to evolve it to fit their tastes and values. And my son's going to do the same thing. You know, he's going to choose whatever he wants from our legacy. He might look back on some of the things I'm nostalgic about as immoral or destructive. Uh, We certainly do from generation to generation. And so, yeah, I just want him to be, as uh, Florence puts it, make him happy while you still can.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's Jay Ryan Strottle. Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club is his new novel, and it's out today. Jay, it's been a pleasure, and the novel is just, it's beautiful. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Jen.
2: A reminder, we have a text club. You can always connect with us that way. Find out how to sign up under the Talk to 1A tab at the 1A.org. And we have a book club, too. If you'd like to join that community, go to goodreads.com and search for 1A under the community tab. We'll be talking about the latest book, or the first book, actually, in our book club pretty soon. So make sure you find out what it is. Read it so you can be part of the discussion. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone.